1 Corinthians chapter 1. Here's a test question. What temple is that of up there? You guys remember? <laughs> Apollo. That's the temple of Apollo. It was in downtown. It was like right off of Fountain Square. And, uh, and that's all that survives of it now. Apparently there was 38 columns originally and now only seven of them still stand. But, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Not too long ago, uh, we watched one of Chuck Swindoll's sermons during our Wednesday night Bible study, and it was called uh, Things That Last. And at one point in the sermon he gave, and it really didn't have much to do with you know, anything in the message, really. It was just a point he was trying to make. But at one point in his message, he mentioned the law of first mention or the principle of first mention. And what that is, is it's the practice of trying to identify when something is first introduced to us in Scripture. Um, it can be a word, it could be a person, but it's almost always spoken of when it's talking about biblical truths. And uh, for some examples, um, in, the, in the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we're introduced to God. There's only one God, the true God, the one who did all of this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so right off the bat, we are introduced to our Creator. He is the one true God. But then in the very next verse, it tells us that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And that's strange. What does that mean? The Spirit of God is moving over the surface of the waters. And so you can imagine if you were uh, reading what Moses wrote a long, long time ago for the first time, you had to have some questions. What's, what does that mean? The Spirit of God is moving over the surface of the waters. And then when you get to verse 26 of chapter 1, God starts talking about Himself in plurality. He says, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. And so right off the bat, we know that there's one true God, but we can see that He is complex. And that there is... I already lost you, didn't I? <laughs> he's, he's like, I'm getting out of here. But uh, right off the bat, we can see that God is very complex, but also that there is plurality in the Godhead. But there's so many questions. And so this develops over time. Uh, it's not something that is explained completely the very first time it's mentioned. It, it develops. Um, God reveals more and more information about himself in this respect over time, progressively. It's called progressive revelation. And so you have to take all of the Bible in its totality to get a really good handle on what God is telling us about Himself. But once you and I both know now that God has revealed Himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we can say, hmm, when did, when did God first start to try to explain this to us? And so we, we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and verses 2, 
You see this law of first mention uh, in, in Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sinned, they realized that they were naked. And an animal was slain and its skin was used to cover their nakedness. And so at a very early point in Scripture, we are introduced to the concept of substitutionary atonement through the shedding of blood. And so we look backwards. If I was to ask you to take 20 people and to put them in order by age, or to put them in order by their alphabetically by their last name, or to put them in order by their height, uh, tallest to smallest, or whatever. If I asked you to do that, and you had got it all done, and then I accidentally said, oh, I forgot there's 10 more people in this back room. We need to plug them in. So you kind of have to start all over. So we don't like to do that, do we? We want all of the information at once. And so you can see how important this is in studying the Scriptures to not just concentrate on uh, if you want to know what the Bible teaches about water baptism, you don't just concentrate on the book of Acts. You've got to take it all into totality. And so this is what Chuck Swindoll was talking about when he said the law of first mention. And it's very important. And the reason I bring it up is because this is what we see Paul doing in 1 Corinthians. The first nine verses of chapter 1 are an introduction. And in the introduction, there's a number of first mentions. Things that are in seed form that are going to be developed in greater detail as we study through this letter. And last Sunday, we looked at the first three verses, and today we'll be concentrating on all nine of them again. But the first three is more of a greeting. And verses four through nine is uh, Paul is, is thanking God, and he's thanking God for them. And so it's an it's a order of thanksgiving in verses 4 through 9. But it's all one piece. It's, a, it's all together. It's a, it's, you can't really divide it up very well because he takes this entire introduction to set the tone for what he's going to be talking about later. And if you're familiar at all with 1 Corinthians, you know that this is a church where there was a lot of problems. Um, if Paul was to write a letter to our church, I think there would be a lot of problems. But there definitely was here. And we know about a number of them. You probably do know several of the problems that were going on in this church. And so when you look at these first nine verses, you don't get any clue of that. You, you almost have no idea what's coming. Because all he's doing is he's talking so much about our position in Christ as Christians, who we are. And uh, it is something that is true about all Christians, all churches, all Christians. Um, our position in Christ, it's something that is set in stone. It's, um, you know, when you, when you receive Christ as your Savior, He rescues you, He saves you. And at no point does He decide He's not going to save you anymore. It's... God's just not like that. It's a, it's a done deal. And so when he talks about your salvation in God's mind, it's, it's already occurred. You know, you're, no, you're in no danger of eternal damnation. You're not in danger of falling out of his love or falling out of his family. He has adopted you in. He has given you a full eternal inheritance. And you are secure in him. And so this is what the first part of this letter is all about is our position in Him. 
And what that should do is bring us into a place of unity where we all have something in common that we can all appreciate about each other. And also it should bring us to a place of humility where we realize what God has actually done for us because um, I'm, I'm really bad. I am. I, I'm a bad person. And um, I know it. You don't have to tell me. I know. And so our position in Christ is, is humbling. And then in the last part of this, I just want to tell you, just in, we're just doing a flyover right now of these nine verses, and then we're going to look at them. But in the first part of it is so much, it has everything to do with who we are in Christ, our position. Uh, just that so many things, <clears throat> so many things are finished. You know, uh, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I've been saved. I have put my faith in Jesus. That is a finished truth. Not because of me, not because of what I do or don't do, not because I've lived up to His standards, because I have not. It's because of what Jesus did for me, and I have put my faith in Him. And so, so much of this introduction has to do with that. But woven through the very ending of this, Paul is going to start talking about, because that's true, what are we supposed to be doing right now? And he's going to wrap it up. He's going to close it with this, because uh, we can't stay at this on, on our marriage. We can't stay at the wedding day. You know, we can't just live right there. We can't just rest in the fact that we're saved, eternally secure, and just stay there. God has stuff He wants to do with us. And in our daily life, we're supposed to be reflecting Him. And so this is how He kind of closes out this introduction. And so, if, if we could, um, let's read the first nine verses together. It says, Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and our brother Sosthenes, to God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus, that by Him you were made rich in everything, in all speaking and in all knowledge, as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also confirm you to the end, blameless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By Him you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we spent quite a bit of time yesterday, talking last Sunday, talking about Paul and how he was called as an apostle. And so our mind quickly moves to uh, this man by the name of Saul, who was a devout Jew, a man committed to God. 
but terribly misunderstood. And he thought he was doing the right thing by persecuting the church and trying to stamp it out. It would be kind of like some sect that tried to intervene in our church and started to teach some kind of false thing. And, you know, so there's a church split somewhere and 15 people show up here on Sunday morning and they want to join. And before you know it, they're bringing all kinds of stuff in here that's wrong. It's heretical or something. And so all of us would be, you know, uh, upset about that. We would want to try to squish that, run them off, show them the right way. And if they don't accept it, we've got to, they've got to be out of here. We can't have that in here. That kind of a thing. This is Paul's mindset. He really thought he was doing the right thing. And so he was on the road to Damascus and he was, he was going there to arrest Christians. And God intervened on that road and, and, uh, and changed Saul's life. And God did this when becoming a Christian was the exact opposite of what was on his mind. It was the last thing on his mind. The last thing Saul was thinking about doing was becoming a Christian. And so when we see what God did with Saul, that helps all of us to realize what God did when He rescued us. We, you, you and I may not have some kind of dramatic story like He does, but every one of us was born in sin, born an outcast of God's family. We were not in His family, but we have to be born into it. And all of us were deaf, dumb, and blind. And some of you may have grown up in church, and so it's just fuzzy to you when, you actually, when this actually happened. But you know it's true now. You know it. Some of you may have had really dramatic situations where your life turned around 180 degrees. But every single one of us, this is true of. Where we were just like Saul, in complete hostility towards God, and then he reached down and he rescued us. That's why Romans 5.8 says that, For God has demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were sinners, while we were in rebellion, Christ died for us. And so Saul's story uh, really helps us to see our lost condition, how helpless we were before God rescued us. Just like other people that we know and care so much about. They can't see. And speaking of this choosing, and we talked about God's, we, we did, really didn't get into election, but God chooses whom he's going to rescue. In John 15, 16, the very first part of the verse says that you didn't choose me, but I chose you. It's God who chooses. This is, this is what being called by God is trying to express. This calling, this choosing. Paul was called as an apostle. The believers in Corinth are called as saints. In verse 9, it says that they were called in Him. Called. Called by Him. This is, again, our position. This is what we're talking about. Our position in Christ. We are chosen, sanctified, blameless. And there in verse 8, it says we are blameless. We will be presented before the throne of God blameless. That's our position. It may not be who you and I are in our daily lives, you know, but it is who we are as believers. 
We compared this with a, with a marriage. You know, you, you have your wedding day. And then after that, it's over. The wedding's over. There's nothing, there's nothing more to marriage than that. You just, once you have the ceremony, then that's it. You're married. You have no other role, no other responsibilities, no other accountability. You just do whatever you want. So marriage is a perfect picture of our relationship with Christ. And it's, uh, you know, when we receive Him as our Lord and Savior, it's, uh, it's, it transpires into our day, everything we do. And that's why Jesus goes on in this verse and He'll say that uh, I appointed you that you should go out and produce fruit, that your fruit should remain. This is talking about after the wedding day. And so up to this point, we've been focusing so much about our calling, our position in Christ. But we see here in the very first verse that Paul says, I'm Paul, I'm called as an apostle. And the reason Paul brings up the apostleship is... uh, one, last Sunday we talked about how God chose Paul before he was even born. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He was chosen by God to, to go to the Gentiles. And just a few in the next chapter in Galatians, it talks about how Peter was chosen to go to the Jewish people. You know, these are decisions that God made beforehand. Just like he made decisions about you beforehand. Before you were even born. So that's one aspect of Paul being called as an apostle. But as Gene was talking about in Sunday school, you know, uh, Christians in Rome didn't know Paul. They may have heard about the 12 disciples. Paul wasn't one of those people. And so his, his apostolic authority was called into question many times. And we'll see later Paul defending his apostleship in chapter 4. He'll defend it in chapter 9. He'll defend it in his second letter to the Corinthian church. Paul's apostleship. And so this is first mention. This is letting us know that there's, there's going to be some stuff he's going to have to talk about on down the road. And so I'm not going to pick each one of those things out as we go through this introduction, but just as by way of example, right off the bat, we can see that there are things that, God is, that Paul is going to be addressing. In this particular situation, it's in Corinth, his credentials will be placed in, in question. And in verse 2 it says that he has written this letter, this is to God's church at Corinth. And the word for church, is, I'm sure you've heard it's ecclesia, but uh, it's a, a Greek preposition, uh, out. And uh, the Greek word, a Greek verb called for call. And so it's, uh, the idea is to be called out. That's what the church, that word means, to call out. And so it has this idea of um, uh, uh, people gathering, uh, being gathered and summoned to come somewhere. And so gathering is a big, cool word in a lot of churches now. They don't call them church services anymore. They just call them gatherings. But uh, the, the, the idea is that the church, this word, uh, was adopted by Christians because um, we all know the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. But at one point, 
because so many Christian or so many Jewish people only spoke Greek. Uh, there's reasons for all of that, but they translated the Old Testament into Greek. And that translation is called the Septuagint. And when they would translate from Hebrew into Greek for the words, the congregation of the house of Israel, um, the house of Israel, the assembly of the house of Israel, he would use this word ekklesia, this gathering of the house of Israel. So the church kind of adopted that. And so right here, it's a very interesting word that's being used to identify Christians. It's those who are called by God um, out of the world into a holy community. So the word is being called, called out, called out of the world to be a holy community. This is the church. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, he's writing this letter to those uh, those are the people in Corinth, the Christians in Corinth. He says, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And so this again refers to our position. It means to be set apart or to be uh, having been made holy is the concept behind this word sanctified, having been made holy. And so uh, as we know from this letter and things I've said already, there's going to be plenty of unholiness later. But in the introduction, Paul is emphasizing who we are in Christ, our position. Um, there, in, in verse uh, in verse eight, it says that they will be that they are blameless. So again, this is the statement that follows. It says here, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. And again, we've we're only in verse two there, but. Why do you think that he's saying such a thing? Called as saints with all of those in every place who call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. He's their Lord and He's our Lord. He's their Christ, He's our Christ. Paul is doing this because it is foreshadowing the divisions and the factions that are present in this church. We don't have enough people to have clicks, <laughs> but if we were big, maybe we would have some clicks, and uh, maybe uh, a bunch of people over here don't like these people. You know, that's one good thing about being a small congregation. But there was all kinds of problems in this church, and one of the worst ones was the division, the attitude of pride that caused people to separate instead of becoming one body and having being united and. Uh, We've always said that the, one of the wonderful things about this church is that we don't care who you are when you come in the door. We're just glad that you're here. And that's true. We really are just glad you're here. And so we have a very welcoming body. Um, but at this church, it was, it was something very different. And Paul's trying to say, you know, quit thinking so small. Quit focusing on the little things that divide us and recognize that we are part of a very large family we have been, we are in Christ, and we are the recipients of all of these incredible blessings. We don't have a care in the world. We're not like everybody else. We're in great shape. And if we just talk about how there, I mean, there the, the the divisions in this church, and and in chapters 12 through 14, we find out that there's all kinds of pride 
and abuse of spiritual gifts and uh, there was I, I, there's a, a million things in here a million things in here that they were doing wrong and you know after we get through this letter if you were to remember this introduction you'd be kind of like what is what is Paul talking about because he starts talking about how thankful he is for them now keep in mind that Paul is in Ephesus and he's been hearing things about immorality and stuff and so they're he shot off a letter to them. And they didn't even understand it. And so now we start to hear stuff from the household of Chloe. And these four guys, three guys from the church have brought a, a, a letter with a bunch of questions to Paul. And so Paul's reading it is kind of like, you know, should we kill this person? You know, should we steal this money? You know, it's kind of like Paul's like, no, absolutely not. What are you guys, are you kidding me? And so he's just reading all of these questions. And so Paul knows that there's a lot of really uh, silly stuff going on in this church. But you don't see that. In this introduction, he's talking about how thankful he is for them. I always thank my God, in verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus. And again, there, God's grace given to you. That's a, that's a gift. It's something that you didn't possess. It's something that was given to you. But we see here that, that Paul is, is he's always, when, he, when he thinks about these Christians, he always thanks God for them. And so as we move through this letter, through all the problems, we might look back on this introduction and, and, and scratch our heads. You know, It's kind of like the preacher who gave a funeral for a fellow, and he gave this glowing description of this man. And then after the funeral, everybody was going up to each other and saying, who is he talking about? But Paul is thankful. He's thankful for them. And let's, let's just ask ourselves why that is. You can say you're thankful because that's what you're supposed to say. But if you really are, you know, why was Paul so thankful of these fellows? We remember that Paul was in Asia Minor and he kept trying to go to this place and, and the door would shut. He kept trying to go to this place and that door was shut and he just kept bounced until he ended up in Troas. And that's when God showed him that they were supposed to go across the sea over into Macedonia. And so Paul and Silas and those guys, they all went over there. They, they sailed across the Aegean Sea and they started going through all of these cities. You know, we, we talked about this Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica and Athens and everything was going so bad. Christians, uh, people were believing in Jesus churches were being formed but they were being ran out of town and there was no time to you know set up camp and you know they couldn't get this they didn't get the steeple up you know they wanted to get the steeple up in time but they just couldn't they got ran out of town there was no you know they didn't have time to put up the, the stained glass windows and so you can imagine so when Paul is beaten up and beaten up and literally beaten up in Philippi and he's all the way down through Athens and everybody's just kind of like, you know, Joe philosopher and whatever. And so when Paul came into Corinth, we remember he, was, he came limping in. He, he said that I came in here in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He was all beat up. And he went to the synagogue just like he'd been doing. And, you know, some, some people believed, but 
the Jewish people there, they, they dragged him before the, the courts there in Corinth, thinking that he was going to be put to death or something. But Jesus came to Paul in the middle of the night. This is in Acts chapter 18, verse 9 through 10. It says, Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking, and don't, don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you. Because I have many people in this city. I've got plans. You see, when Paul looked back on that church in Corinth, he, he saw them as his children. They were people that he had been discipling. Paul spent 18 months, a year and a half in this city with these people. He loved them. And there was, a, there was a, just the time that we spend with each other through the years at this church, us. We, we love each other more and more all the time. Just spending time with each other, our shared faith, makes us love each other. And so this is when, when Paul looked back on them, he had a deep affection. He was truly thankful for them. Now we do know that he's getting ready to address a bunch of stuff. And so another very simple reason for this wonderful introduction and, and the, the good things that he has to say about them is that you know nobody wants to get punched in the stomach right off the bat. Nobody wants you to just tear into them right off the bat. That, that's not how we can communicate love. And so this is where we come to uh, in verse 4. We've read, through this, we've read through this, Paul called in an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and our brother Sosthenes to God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints, with all those in every place who call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, theirs and ours. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to begin talking about who we are in Christ, and what God wants us to be doing right now. What the Christian life looks like after the wedding. Paul is now going to begin to summarize what has been afforded to the believer while he's absent, while Jesus is away. What God has given us to do. And it, uh, it's up there on the slide too, but... He's going to talk about how they are in possession of spiritual wisdom. This is so important because uh, the church was mocked for its foolishness and stupidity. And so Paul is going to be talking about how Christians understand something that the lost person does not understand. They don't have the capacity to understand. It's a wonderful thing that we have. Something that we can take so much for granted. He's talking about how we have been, uh, we have been uh, given, we are in possession of spiritual wisdom. We have been equipped for every good work. And that God will strengthen us while we wait for Him all the way to the end. And then present us before His Father, blameless. That's who we are today. That's who the Christians are in the first century in Corinth. And that's who you and I are today. This is what Paul would say to us. that We possess spiritual wisdom. 
We, we understand things that the world does not understand. And he didn't just leave us without the ability to do the things that he's asked us. He's equipped us. And in our weakest moments, he's there to give us strength. While we wait. Because he is coming back. And when he does, our position in Christ is going to be super important. All of a sudden, how, many, how sick you were of me saying in our position in Christ, our position in Christ. How many times you got sick of me saying that just, just the past two Sundays. All of a sudden, just think about how important that's going to be because we are going to be presented with great pride. Blameless. And so, in verse 5, this is when it begins. He says that, that by Him you were enriched in everything. That's the equipping. And in all speech and all knowledge, that's talking about spiritual wisdom. So in that one sentence, we see these two ideas. The spiritual wisdom and the equipping. Enriched in everything. And that word enriched means just lavishly wealthy. You know, there's... Uh, you and I, would the, the people in Haiti who are trying to get into the country and the border, to us, to, to look at us, they think that we are so wealthy. But you and I both know that there are people who are so much wealthier than we are. That's the word. How richly we have been giving everything that we need. And in all speech and all knowledge, like I said, this is talking about spiritual wisdom. This is going to be developed later. But Paul is pointing out that they have everything. So you have everything regardless of how you are viewed by the world. It says here that when they, when they believe the gospel, they were enriched in every way. And every saved person knows that this is true. Because our lives have been changed forever. Because even if I wanted to, I just I couldn't go back. I mean, I guess I could go back to living really bad. I'm obviously I do plenty of that already. But I I could to just forget about church and not go back to church anymore, and to just go back into the world and just live in the world for the rest of my life. I guess I could do that, but I'm not going to be happy. I, I'm going to always know that I'm doing something wrong. And it's, my conscience is always going to be invaded, and and I can't I can't go back. I can't undo what's happened to me. I have been forever changed. I have been enriched in every way, and the fact that that is true, and I hope that you can say that about yourself, because just just to make clear, going to church reading the Bible, giving money, whatever you do, those things are things you do after the wedding. You know, there has to be the wedding day. You have to have been born again. You have to have actually been born into His family. That's when you're in Christ. You know, that's when that happens. There's saints and there's ain'ts. There's, if you're not in them, you're, you're an ain't. And so, uh, this is talking about how our life changes forever. And because that's true, 
what that does is that, that testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel. It testifies to the truthfulness of what we have believed. Our changed life does not point to us, it points to what we have believed in. And so this is what Paul's talking about here when he says that the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So uh, we possess salvation, but, but our salvation, our changed heart, points away from us and to the authenticity of what it is we have believed. So my life points to the validity of Jesus, unless I'm living wrong. But the, the fact that we've been born again, the fact that I'm not who I used to be, you know, and when you when you see the old Craig and the new Craig, you know, there was people who knew the old Craig, and and uh, so when they saw the the new guy, they they might have thought that all I did is turned over a new leaf or whatever. But as I've went through life, all of my ups and downs, and there's been plenty and failures and disappointments. I'm still his kid. I'm still committed to him. And that testifies not about me, it testifies to Him. We are His ambassadors. This is what Paul's talking about. You guys have believed in something that's changed your life forever. Realize that you are a walking testimony of the truthfulness of the Gospel. And then he goes on in verse 7, he says, So that you do not lack any spiritual gift, as you eagerly wait for the revelation, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, not lacking in any spiritual gift, this adds to the idea of being equipped, being enriched in everything, not lacking in any spiritual gift while you wait. And by the way, this is a very important statement. And we will see this when we come to chapters 12 through 14, because we're going to return to the statement he's made here. But to the point here in the introduction has everything to do with... God given us spiritual wisdom and us being equipped while we wait for the return. And finally there in verse 8 he says that while we wait, he will also strengthen us all the way to the end. And so we may die before he returns. And so the end is simply our last breath. He's with us all the way to the end. And lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Jesus says here, I, he tells Paul in chapter 8, 18, in Acts 18, he says, I am with you. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. I'm with you. Paul is saying that we possess spiritual wisdom, that we are equipped, and he will strengthen us to the end when he's going to present us blameless before his Father. And he can't wait to do that. He's looking forward to that day. Something we can barely even begin to comprehend. Imagine you buy a present for somebody, one of your little grandkids or your kids or something, and you can't wait for them to open it. Well, why is this true? Why are we in Christ? And why has God went to so much trouble to set us up for success? God doesn't want us to fail. He wants us to succeed. Why is he went to all of, why is all of this so true? Well, in verse 9 the answer is that because God is faithful. 
Our faith is based upon His promise, not our ability to live up to His standards. It's God who is faithful. So much emphasis in this uh, introduction has been placed upon God's election, His choice, calling us out of darkness, that our position is now in Christ, and because we are in Christ, we are secure. We've been sanctified. We will stand blameless at His return. But then we also know that there's more to marriage than just the wedding day. This is what he closes with in his introduction. He says, we have been called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. While we wait, we are expected to remain in fellowship. Not just fellowship with God, but in fellowship with each other. It's a partnership. It's like in a marriage. We don't just go running around solo in a marriage and we don't just go running around solo in church. That's the whole purpose of coming to a church, the accountability. I'm getting ready to close. I just want want us to think just for a minute about what being in fellowship with God uh, is like. You remember that when Saul was on the road to Damascus to arrest those Christians. And a bright light came down and it was so bright that Paul was blinded. He couldn't see for several days, remember? He had to be led into town blind. Remember? But when he was on that road and this booming bright light shines down on him and then Jesus begins to speak to him. And he says, this is in Acts chapter 9, verse 5, says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, well, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. I want us to think for just a minute. Was Paul persecuting Jesus? Paul was arresting Christians. He was putting to death Christians. He was going to Damascus, Damascus to arrest Christians. He wasn't going to Damascus to get Jesus. He wasn't in Jerusalem trying to get Jesus. He was getting Christians. But Jesus is saying that when you touch one of my kids, it's like you're touching me. I am in a partnership with you. Jesus felt like he was being persecuted. He says, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. God is in partnership with us and we should remain in partnership with Him not just on the day we get married.